Well, we come to a very significant moment in our study through John's gospel this morning. Um, a, a story many, if not, if not most, are familiar with. Um, it's what Luke just read, Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. Now, when we were studying, you gotta reach back, we were studying the book of Ruth. If you were here, um, you'll recall that Rob and I gave you a, a prism with which to look at that story, the book of Ruth. And uh, it was a phrase, I don't know if you recall it, I'm just gonna tell you it. We said, you gotta keep this in mind. There's more than meets the eye. Remember that? And it enabled us to look at the story of Ruth and go, yeah, this story is happening. Mm, but under the waterline, this is what it's telling us about God. Y'all, in this story, there is way more, <laughs> way more than meets the eye at the, at the wedding in Cana. Um, and, and what we've got to do as we did in Ruth, but we, we must do here in this, in this particular story in particular is we've, we've actually, to get to what's under the story without allegorizing or spiritualizing, which a lot of people do with this, and it's easy to do because you can read certain words, go, oh that, oh that, oh that. And without trying to put the guardrails up that we don't go there, we put the guardrails up of Bible study, of biblical hermeneutics or the rules of, reading, observing, interpreting, and applying the scripture. And, and the primary rule in hermeneutics is context, context. And so before I read the story and we, we unpack it, I'm gonna take some time here on the front end and, and, and lay the foundation of the context for this story. And if we get this right, and I trust by the spirit that we will, um, it's gonna be like, it's gonna be like when you have that, you know, your kids have this little sponge thing and it's just a little clump of sponge and you put a few drops on it and it starts going whoop, whoop, boop, 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 and it's an elephant, you know, or it's a flower, you know. This story will unfold in ways, quite frankly, uh, we would never imagine. So before we get to that, um, let's, let's start. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take context in two levels. The first is the broadest level and that's the book context. Now, I did the introduction to the book, some, you know, we're in week five, so, so it was five weeks ago, but I, I touched on this, but not to the degree I'm gonna touch on it now, but this is gonna help us take this story and put it in the book where, where John has placed it. Are you with me? So think of the book of John this way. If this podium uh, is kind of the middle of the book of John, you gotta look at the book of John, and, and what we notice is that chapters one through 12, so we're on this side, chapters one through 12, we, we call the book of signs, the book of signs. Chapters 13 through 21, we understand, is the book of glory. Lord, what do you mean by that, the book of signs? Well, in the first 12 chapters, John is going to present seven signs that identify the person of Jesus. And in in each of those signs, and this is what's important about understanding signs in John's use of the word in John. In the synoptic gospels, Jesus does miracles, works of power, but every time he does one in the synoptics, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, okay? Um, he uses the word dunamis, which means power, dynamite, power. 
And, and so the works of Jesus in those gospels, those writers are, are, are having us think about, look at the power of Jesus, look at the authority of Jesus, look at the kingdom that's come in Jesus. That's what they're focusing on. But when we see Jesus do miracles in the gospel of John, he doesn't use dunamis, he uses simeon. The Greek word here is signs. And, and we've got to keep that in mind. He's, he's speaking of signs here and he wants us to see, here's what's key. Don't, don't get stuck on what just happened. Please put your focus on what that is pointing to. Does that make sense? It's like being, you know, traveling and you see a sign on the road and, and it says, you know, bear crossing. You're, you're in, you know, Yosemite or something. Well, you don't stop the car and tell the kids, everybody look at the sign, right? The sign is telling you, keep your eye out because bear do tend to cross in this area. And so as you're, you see what I'm saying? You don't look at the sign, you look at what the sign is pointing to. That's so critical. So if the dunamis are pointing to the power of, then the simeon, the signs are pointing to the identity of the one who did that pointing to the person of, not the power of. Does this make sense? So we gotta keep that in mind where we are in this book, where we're in the book of signs. Does that make sense? And then the book of glory, 13 through 21, we see Jesus crucified, buried, and raised. This is his glory revealed. And I'm gonna talk about that in a few moments. Another way to look at this twofold division would be to take John 1, 5. Let's just think about this verse we covered some weeks ago, John 1, 5. It says, the light shines in the darkness, chapters one through 12. The darkness did not overcome it, chapters 13 through 21. Does this make sense? Let me give you another major book context. And we gotta keep this in mind or we're gonna miss it on this. You always wanna keep in mind, why did the author put this book together. What's the purpose of the book? Y'all, this is not easy to discern in a lot of Bibles, a lot of uh, books of the Bible. You can't miss it in John. So rather than start at chapter two, where we're gonna be, I want you to actually go to chapter 20. John chapter 20. And I want you to just quickly look, John 20 verses 30 and 31. You wanna know why John put everything he put in this book? Here it is. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you'll recall, when I introduced the book, I said, Jesus or or John puts these book together. It's not in chronological order. He, He just chooses things that he puts in there and he did it with ruthless selectivity. You got to think about, he left so much out. I mean, I can't imagine how the Holy Spirit led him to do this. I can barely take something out of a sermon that I need to take out, right? But, but he left so much out. There's no, Lord, there's no Lord's prayer. There's no sermon on the mount. There's no exercising of demons. There's no end times, dis- you know, there's just so much he left out. But what we've got to grasp is, what did he put in? And it takes everything he put in, and I mean, it just puts a steroid in it. I mean, it's like, whoop, this is here for a reason. And it's here, if it's here, it's enough for you 
to put your faith in the life, death, <coughs> excuse me, and resurrection of Jesus. Everybody make sense with me now? So now we've got the, the context of the book is, look, everything in this book, and there's a lot left out, but everything in it is enough for you to put your faith in Christ. Within the book itself, we are in this section called the book of signs. That's the big context. I'll get into some cultural things in a moment. One more piece of context. What's the immediate context in the book? Now, when we do this, when we're studying our Bibles, we say, well, in particular, what comes right before this story? Like what sets the story up? Are you with me? And to do that, we're gonna reach back to what Rob walked us through last week. So, so now you're gonna flip all the way to chapter one. Look at chapter one, verses 50 and 51. Jesus has, has, has said, come and see. He's called his first disciples. Nathaniel was sitting under a fig tree. Jesus saw him. Call, and when he comes, Nathaniel comes, he says, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel's going, you couldn't see me under the fig tree. That's, you know, I don't know, miles from here. You weren't with me. So, so, so this is Jesus's response to Nathaniel. This is verses 50 and 51. Look at it with me. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. What in the world is he talking about? Well, Rob explained it to us brilliantly. Jesus is saying here, is that the ascending and descending of angels on Jesus is Jesus saying that <laughs> I am the place where heaven and earth meet, <laughs> where the unsearchable glory of God touches this earth, this world and humanity. It happens in me. He is in a sense. It's like I'm the portal between these two. And you're gonna see greater things than me just saying to you, I saw you under the fig tree, even though I wasn't there. You're gonna see greater things. So here's why I'm saying this, the immediate context of the story that we're getting ready to read. Can you imagine like the original readers read that? At least, and I even do it on this one, I'm going, what's gonna happen next? Oh my gosh, what is it gonna look like when heaven touches earth in this man? This and so we're, in a sense, we're primed, right? To go, what's... What's this gonna look like? And then guess what comes right after that? This story of a wedding in Cana. The weight of this particular sign, I cannot overstate. Let me add one more point to that. You look on the screen, this is from G.L. Borchert. It's a New American commentary, wonderful commentary in John. He writes, the positioning of this sign in the gospel obviously is of crucial importance because it is, not, it is not merely intended to be the first by number, okay? It is the first, and John says this, of such miraculous events, but it also functions as, functions as the head, the clue, or the key, the arche to the signs of Jesus. I highlighted this. The one who understands this sign, you all. Now we're gonna, we're gonna, we got seven signs we're gonna see. But the one who understands this sign should understand the point of all of them. I, even in studying, I felt sufficiently sobered to go, oh God, may we get this right. 
may we see what you want us to see in this sign. I'm gonna summarize the story with just three statements. So just so you know where we're going. Verses one through five, the wine ran out. I'm just taking right out of the story. This is the easiest way to do it, a narrative. The wine ran out. Uh, Verses six through eight, the good wine is served. And then verses nine through 12, the disciples believed. I'm gonna take each one. We're gonna look at each one in in, in a bit of depth and then I'm gonna summarize it with some applications and principles in terms of what does it mean to us and how do we apply it? Let's start with the wine ran out. I'm gonna reread the story, but I'm gonna take take it a piece at a time. Verses one through five. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Just a pause. You never want to respond to a woman like that. Anyone, right? Because that's just like, wow. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Let's unpack some cult- the cultural moment. Weddings in Jesus's day. Now in our day, they're days of celebration, right? I, we totally get that. But we've got to understand in, in uh, Israel, in, in, in these days, life was hard. Way, it's just way harder than life is for us. You got to understand it. They're under Roman rule. They're an occupied people. Weddings and births were time to party and celebrate. And, and this is what God, when God instituted marriage, it was, it was a celebration and celebrate they did. Now, a, a wedding would occur when a, generally a, a wedding was arranged and there was a betrothal. A betrothal in those days would have been the parents, you know, arranging the marriage between these two individuals. And it was, it was binding. It, it was not like, hey, we just got engaged. No, this was a betrothal in, in which you, you can get it best this way. You remember Mary was betrothed to Joseph. She was found to be pregnant. And what did Joseph say to himself? How can I quietly divorce her? You go, wait, they're not even married. No, they're not. Because in betrothal, uh, they're not married, but it's, it's as binding as marriage in that day. They're just, they're not living together and they haven't consummated the marriage. On the day of the wedding, when we're gonna begin the wedding ceremony, uh, the groom and all his buddies would go through town with lamps and they're cheering. I mean, you know, think of the, the virgins with the lit lamps and things like that. They're going, and by the way, they didn't take the straight route to her house. They went all through the town. Why? Because the whole town, this was a celebration for the whole town to to engage in. So they're making, letting everybody know we're gonna go get her. They get her, you know, they carry her all the way back to the groom's home. And that begins a week long celebration, (laughs) not a few hours and we're gonna dance and go home. A week long feast, celebration, food, wine, friendship, fellowship, all of that tied up in the wedding. And then of course, at the end of that time, they didn't all go for a week, but they could go as long as a week. At the end of that time, the, they would be uh, the, the ceremony and then he would take her into his, his, his home, right? And they would consummate the marriage. That's a lot of food. 
<laughs> isn't it? Uh, that's a lot of, uh, of, a, of, of drink. That's a lot of wine. Um, now I've said this before, I've said this before because I, I said, I don't know where I was teaching on this, something along these lines, but you know, in, in those days, the, the groom's family was responsible for all that food, all that wine, all that celebration, which if you wanna sign my document that I'm trying to get approved, we need to go back to the biblical model for, <laughs> for a wedding. Now that Dar our son's married, I got two daughters, right? We'll go that way and let, let, the, let the groom's family pay for it all. It, here's, here's what's striking and we don't quite fully grasp perhaps in the story. The worst thing that could happen is what happened. The wine ran out. And again, you know, we, 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 what do you mean? That's not that big. Let's think of ourselves in that cultural time. From the earliest time, wine was, was Israel's symbol, think of it this way, of God's goodness, his bounty, his provision, his mercy and grace. God chose wine to be symbolic of that. Wine equals joy. Wine is a sign of God's goodness. And, and I'm gonna save a little bit of time. If someone comes up to me and this is okay, but you're even thinking, I say like, I don't know, man, that, I don't know that they drank alcoholic wine then. They drank, out, the wine had alcohol in it. I know there are some could argue that, that it's not, but the, the, the best exegesis shows us that this wine was alcoholic. It, you could get drunk on this wine, okay? So this, and we'll see it even in the story. And I would say this, it's hard to read the Bible and see the, see the warnings against too much wine and go, well, is too much, drink too much grape juice? I mean, what are you, indigestion? No, no, no. You know what I'm saying? So this is, this is alcoholic. I think Frederick uh, Bruner, excellent New Testament scholar, summarized, I read this and I went, I'm gonna read this to us. Cause I go, you wanna see my policy, our policy on wine? Here it is. Wine is celebrated, drunkenness is deplored and condemned. End of discussion, okay, biblically. Now, this is a moment of crisis, a time when there should be nothing but celebration. This is so weird, but it's true. The lawsuit that could be filed, because there's records of lawsuits being filed when someone went to a wedding and the wine ran out or they didn't have enough food, that paled in comparison to the shame that would sit on this groom and his family. It's, you know, I'm trying to help us understand. This was a massive deal. And it seems in light of her involvement, Mary, that uh, she, I, I, we don't know, but we can presume, I think in the story that she's got some responsibility in this wedding, right? Perhaps a close friend. Uh, perhaps that's why Jesus is there because he grew up with the boy. And, you know, it's just like, this is, they're, they're people like us. And, and so Mary feels responsibility to do something about this problem. And to our ears, I joked about it, but his response, it does sound abrupt. It sounds downright disrespectful because we live here and they live in a culture 2000 years ago. Just like if you went to a country today, they would do things that you go, that is so weird. And to them, it's just normal. I will say this, Mary shows up twice in this gospel here. And then when Jesus is hanging from the cross and he uses the same address, woman, this is John, he's gonna take care of you. 
There's no disrespect. I'm just trying, there's no disrespect in his response. It's a respectful, honoring term. And yet, okay, we got to hold the tension here. It does carry a tinge of correction. He's saying loosely, loosely translated, mother, your responsibility, your responsibilities at this wedding. And the reason I came to this planet, they, they really don't have anything to do with each other. <laughs> this is kind of what he, this is what he says. The literal is, uh, what have, what have, what have I and you in common? What, what are you, what, what's your life and what's happening at this wedding have in common between us? That's really what he's saying here. I don't fully understand this, y'all, but I think this is fascinating and quite, quite beautiful. Jesus has said, my hour has not yet come. This is his response to his mom. Throughout John, his hour, and we're gonna see this, is referring to his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. That's his hour, that's his time. That's why he's, he's come. This is his glory. Does this make sense? So we're way over here in the beginning of his public ministry, and he's saying that is not, it's not time for that. You tracking with me? My hour's not yet come. And yet, there's something in what Mary said, I don't know, something in the way she looked at him, that God the Father gave the green light to God the Son to do what he got ready to do because it reveals his glory. It begins to leak out what that hour is all about. In God's providence. Isn't that, isn't, you gotta hold that tension, don't we? says, my hour's not yet come. Then he, he begin, the hour begins to unfold. Out of Mary and her response to her son. Someone said to me after the first service, we were talking about this and I could spend a few minutes on this and I, I don't have time to do, but I will just say this. It's an interesting, something interesting happens here, doesn't it? Mary's somewhat in control of the wedding or some things in the wedding. And so she, she does what she can do to get the wine problem solved. But do not miss that she, when she turned to the servants and said, do what he tells you, <laughs> she let it go. There's something in that for every parent in the room. I remember one of our kids, you know, in a pickle. This is truly of the spirit. I am not smart enough to say this, but I do remember saying to this child, I trust Christ in you. And, and I know some of you are looking at me going, you know, if I was raising Jesus, I would too. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, but, but there's, a, there's something in that for us. Do what he says. And, and her control was relinquished. Does that make sense? Her control was relinquished in that moment. Well, the wine ran out and then the good wine is served. Look at verses six through 10. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the serpents, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. 
And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom over, here's the person responsible for this, and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, because the alcohol is gonna numb their tastes and judgment, okay, after they have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. In Luke's gospel, chapter 11, the Pharisees invite Jesus to a meal. Jesus accepts. He sits down and he's ready to eat. And the Pharisees look at one another and go, this guy says he's a rabbi from God and he didn't even wash his hands. <laughs> Jesus didn't wash his hands. What's going, because the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they understood it wasn't just hygienic to have your hands cleaned, okay? It was religious. It was spiritual cleansing. You gotta wash your hands. They got mad at the disciples when they sat down and ate and hadn't washed their hands. And so you've got in the story, note what's introduced, these six jars for ritual purification, for cleansing. Now there's this, you gotta, you gotta put the lens on, there's more that meets the eye. This, this water would have been used when the guests came, they would have taken, you know, out of those jars, they would, have, they would have washed their hands. Yes, hygienic, wash your hands, kids. But it would have been more than that. It would have been symbolic. You know, you need to be cleansed before we come in and be in this celebration. We're gonna find throughout this gospel, we're just on the beginning of this, by the way. Jesus's words and actions are going to put him at odds. Jesus' words are going to put him at odds with the religious leaders. This is it's just going to be a, a constant clash. And what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to identify, and he does it here, the the rites and rituals of Judaism, and, and I'll say of the law. Okay, all that Israel was doing, and they were doing more than the law said. Jesus shows up on the scene, okay? And now he's here and he looks at all of that and he says, that doesn't count anymore, to, to be blunt. And when I say that, please know, Jesus is not saying that the law is bad. He's not saying that at all. We've got to understand that the whole Old Testament and all that God gave to Israel for them to do and believe were to be, to be at that connection point with him. All of that really mattered, but all of it was pointing to the one who would come and who would satisfy all that. John the Baptist, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world to the law that said, sacrifice this sheep, this cow, this ox, this goat. So Jesus stands, you see this in, in opposition to that, but in fact, he's fulfilling it. <laughs> the religious leaders feel the opposition. Does this make sense? So, so in this wedding, you see this tension that arises out of the story. The ritual pots were for spiritual cleansing in their eyes, and now they're filled to the brim. And what Jesus is saying, I will suggest, is that all of the ritual cleansing water to the brim is nothing compared to the cleansing 
blood of the Savior. This is the image, the picture that John is giving us. By the way, you know, 120, 180 gallons of wine, y'all, that is way more than they needed. I mean, they can't consume all that wine. Again, we have to sit back. Why so much wine? Let me reframe, let me reframe the, the abundance of wine. How about if I reframed it like this? Because this is what Jesus is demonstrating it is. How much mercy do you need? How much forgiveness do you need? How much grace do you need? How much goodness of God do you need? More than enough. You can't exhaust this supply. <laughs> That's the picture John is giving us in this story. How, how, how do we know that that's what he's saying here? Well, because he says so here on the back end. The disciples believe, that's the last two verses, verse 11 and 12. This, the first sign of, first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, his disciples, and stayed there for a few days. Go back to our context. I started with the whole book context and the immediate context where, where Jesus says, you're gonna see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's what's happening. Heaven is touching earth in the person of Jesus. Because it's a sign, Simeon, it's a sign, you all. Don't get, we can't just look at, at what just happened. We gotta go, what is it pointing to? And I've just said, all that wine is pointing to all that Jesus is and that he satisfies all that the law required. Jesus in himself satisfies that. He's the fulfillment of it. I want you to notice that just a little bit of the order here. Sign, glory, belief. That's what it said. The sign revealed his glory. And that means it, it revealed the, God, Jesus's nature, his purpose, his character. It was sign, glory. They saw it. The disciples believed. His glory manifest. When he said, my hour is not yet come, I said, it's his crucifixion. Let me, let me back that up in John 17, 1. On the eve of his, now we're over here on the eve of his crucifixion, the upper room discourse. John 17, one, Jesus says this. Father, the hour has come. <gasps> has not, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. See that, that's where the, that was the hour. And here at this wedding, he's at this wedding in Cana years before that particular hour. And his, his, that purpose is beginning to be revealed. It's be, he's beginning to show why he's come. What a story, y'all. I, I kid you not, we could, we could take the next hour and continue in it. I hope you spend some time in it. I'm gonna summarize a few things here in terms of application, in terms of principle, in terms of, okay, what do we do with this? We don't study this to walk out of here and go, man, I didn't know that about the story. Oh, that's, no, no, no. We go, what does this mean for me today? What does God call me to believe and trust? Okay, let me give you five things. 
And then I'm gonna leave them up and we'll, 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 we'll work on the application. First is this, the wine of this world tastes good until you taste the wine that is Jesus. Let's not ignore this. This just makes so much sense, at least to me. Why does the world and all it offers have such a pull on people, on me today, on you before you trust God? It, 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 why does, you know, power, money, sex, significance, prestige, name, image, likeness, you know, whatever you wanna call it. But why does it have such a draw and a pull? You know why? Because it tastes good. It feels good. I'm not gonna, ignore, I'm not gonna look at that and go, yeah, that's terrible. No, no it's actually... Why do I say that? Here's why I say that. When the head waiter who knows his wine tasted the good wine, what did he think had been being served the whole time? Think about it. What did he think that wine was that had been served and ran out? Say it. That was good wine to him. Right? He didn't, he wasn't, ta- he, trust me, he tasted it before he served it. And he didn't taste it and go, this is the poor stuff. He's got it backwards. <laughs> no, he thought this is the good, this is what you do. But when he tasted the wine that Jesus made, don't miss this, the wine that Jesus is. That good wine tasted like, mm, it was poor wine. You won't taste, you won't know that what you're drinking is garbage until you taste Jesus. Because it tastes awesome to you. Number two, while all benefited from the sign, just a few believed in the sign. Be in the few. Y'all, let's be in the few. The servants had a front row seat to this Amazing miracle. I mean, put yourself in the story. What if you were one of the servants? Mary looked at you and said, do what he says. You looked at Jesus, Jesus said, go fill up those jars. You go to the well, you fill up all, you literally, it's water. It's clear, it's water. I fill it up, it's, it's to the brim. There's nothing else that can go in there. This is water. And then Jesus says, take some of them, take it to the head waiter. And you go, oh my God, he's gonna, he's gonna spit it in my face. I'm taking water to the head waiter to say, we've, we're not a wine, but this is what we're gonna, do you see what I'm saying? You gotta think about this. But they go there and they, they don't know what's gonna happen. They give the head He tastes it and he goes, this is the good stuff. You're a servant. You saw the whole thing. What do you do? Now, I'm only saying this to say, John doesn't give us any indication that any of those servants believed. Now, I'm not saying they, I don't know. I think it's worth considering that John didn't make note of it I do know this, everyone at that wedding party celebration, they all drank that awesome wine, but they didn't all believe. The servants knew where the wine came from. Here's what I wanna say to you. And so do you. And so do we. What, we're accountable for what we know. See, like the wedding guests, I would go, they didn't, they didn't know but we do, be in the few. Third, let's listen to Mary. Do whatever he tells you. I don't even have to say anything else on that one. Hey, do what Jesus tells you. Fourth, 
Don't think Jesus has come to make your life better. He's come to transform you. Jesus, Jesus didn't die on the cross to be a part of your life, to clean it up, to make who you are better, to new and improved version. No, 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 this is transformation. I think this is why, in part why this is the first sign. There's six more to come, but it's like this, the, the RK, the, the, the one that explains all the others in part because it's a, it's a miracle of transformation. Something that was one thing doesn't get better. Something that was something here becomes something altogether different here. That's what the gospel does to you and I. We get a new heart. It's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, when he wrote, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, a whole new creation. Not a revamped version of what was. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And then fifth, there is but one thing that is to define every decision in life, God's will. I pull this from the story in part from Mary's interaction. Family relationships would not be the determining factor in Jesus's life and nor can they be for the one who would follow Jesus. You know, I've got qualifiers on this for children, younger people, et cetera. You're under your parents' authority, those kind of things. Listen, for the follower of Jesus, there will come that place. And I think, it, I, think, I think it came here for Mary in a way. It's like Jesus, in a way, Jesus was saying to his mother, I love you, I'll honor you till the day I die, but you are not my authority. My heavenly father is my authority. And every decision I make in life will run through the grid of my heavenly father. That is not just for Jesus, people. That's for anyone who follows Jesus. That's what we do as Christ's followers. So in a practical sense, you go, well, Lord, what do you mean? I mean, every decision in life. Do we move? Do we buy that house? Do I change jobs? What school do I go to? What am I gonna do with this week? Does, do those decisions flow through the grid? Of G, that Jesus had, whatever I see my father doing, do they flow through the grid? I'll start here. This isn't a be all do all, but let's just start with our mission as a church that we've, we've revised, we've restated that we're saying it's our mission, becoming a community of people who follow Jesus with their whole heart and help others do the same. Just, just, just start there. Again, that's our mission as a church, but it's a wonderful starting place, I think, for an individual mission in, in this sense. In my life, does this decision put me in community or take me out of community? Because God has so wired life in us to be in community with others. Okay, what does this decision do? Secondly, does this decision help me follow Jesus with my whole heart? Or does this, this, this put a roadblock in me? See what I'm saying? You just put it through that grid. And then finally, Hey, is what I'm about to do, does that move me toward helping someone else follow Jesus or not? And there, there's but one thing in life that's to define every decision and that's God's will. So with that, you know, we gave you this bookmark early on in these booklets and there's three questions on the back. I'm just gonna read them, but I'm gonna give you an opportunity to pause here. We're always asking ourselves this, what does this text say about the heart and nature of Jesus? Well, we say it this way, what did Jesus say or do that I need to obey? Or this, what's one way I can follow Jesus more fully? Let me ask you to look at these five. I'm gonna give you a minute because we don't wanna walk out these doors knowing this story better. We want not just to walk out these doors, but in this moment by the spirit, 
to be changed and transformed because we're gonna trust what Jesus has said and act on it. What for you would be your application? Perhaps using these five, would you do that please? Take a moment and consider what you might do by the Spirit. Let me invite you to take the communion elements. If you didn't get them, um, please just slip up. They're right in the arcade. Um, Here at Fellowship, we take the Lord's table on a weekly basis. Take the bread out, take the cup and just hold them. We'll we'll, we'll receive them together in a moment, but go ahead and take the bread and take the cup and let's just hold them in our hands. Jesus gave us this ordinance to remind us of his life, death, and resurrection. We remember it historically, but we also proclaim that he's coming again and taking this. And as I thought about leading into this Lord's table out of this particular text, this thought struck me. Because you know this, I'm gonna say this in a moment, but this this wine represents Jesus's blood, symbolic of his blood, his life that was poured out, the, the bread, his body. Jesus knew what hour was coming. He knew what was coming. And it just hits me in the heart of Christ when I think about this. That here at this wedding, he he turned all that water to wine. Symbolic of his blood, they didn't get it. But he knew what he was doing when he did that. I mean, the love of Jesus to the celebratory crowd at the wedding. Waiter tasted that wine and said, you saved the good wine. And Jesus knew that's my blood. And he knew that it would cost him suffering and being nailed to a cross and death, which are nothing compared to being separated from his father. We can't even comprehend that. And he did it for us. He did it for them. Just a few believed. (laughs) Lord Jesus, as we hold the bread and cup today, we put ourselves at that wedding in Cana. Your great love poured out in that simple act, in that sign, in which you were saying to them, and we see it, we do see it more clearly than they did. All that wine is all your blood that cleanses us from every sin, that puts us in a right standing with the heavenly Father because we're clothed in your righteousness. Oh, Jesus, thank you for your life, death, and resurrection for us. Your body broken, receive the bread. your blood poured out, life is in the blood. This is your life poured out for us. It's the good wine, the endless wine. It's the joy our hearts long for. As we receive this cup, oh Jesus, we recognize you died in our place. You were buried and rose again. And we're proclaiming that there's a future day in which you will come to set all things right. And this we rejoice and are glad. We say thank you. 
receive the cup. understand that when God wanted his people to understand just what he had for them in store and what he was bringing them to and what they were made for. And we can't understand something unless God gives us an analogy or a metaphor, right? It's, got, it's like this, you know? And what's the symbol God chooses to show us how much he loves us and what our future holds? Isaiah speaks of it. He speaks of that day. He says it like this. My people will enjoy a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. And I'm telling you, when they heard that, they were like, yes, you know, yes. Wine for them equaled God's ferocious and overflowing goodness. Unstoppable. John, who wrote this gospel, will actually write the last book of the Bible, Revelation, which is a peek into that future. So what Isaiah wrote 600 years before Jesus, John writes after Jesus come and ascended, but John's looking into a future that we don't know the date and he's seeing that same day. He's seeing the same day. And you know how he describes it? As a wedding feast. Wine and wedding. No wonder John gives his first sign of water to wine at a wedding in Cana. Let's stand together, you all. May our hearts cry out in response to this word from God to us. Oh God, thank you, thank you. Thank you for your goodness, your wine to us in the person of Jesus.